Buenos dias, que Dios les bendiga. Good morning, may God bless you all. It is a huge privilege to be here. Thank you, Pastor Dave and Sean and Kyle and everybody that were part of the decision to invite me to be able to participate here in Celebration of Hope. As Kyle mentioned, uh, Enlasa has been a partner um, with Willow for about 12 years, and we've been engaged in Celebration of Hope, I think, almost all 12 years. We've, let's see, we've built chicken coops out in the lobby, we put in fish tanks, uh, we built a house actually right in the middle of the lobby one year. But it is so great for us to be able to be back here today celebrating the start of this amazing two weeks. As an outside partner coming to an event like Celebration of Hope, I want you all to know what a blessing you are to us because the minute we walk in, it's, it's incredible. And it doesn't happen in, my, in many churches. I don't want to throw other churches under the bus or anything. That's not what I'm trying to do. But there's something unique and special about when we walk into this campus during Celebration Hope that I have rarely experienced. The level of excitement, of energy, of passion, of like people coming up to us and talking to us in the lobby, and oh, it's Celebration of Hope, and there's like a whole like passion and energy that is generated that blesses us as partners. And so for all the partners around the world that you've had a chance to either visit, support, care, I just wanna thank you as a church. For all the pastors in El Salvador and Central America and in Africa, as we just heard, we truly appreciate your commitment to the local church, your belief in the local church as an agent of change, as an agent of transformation. So I just want to stop and say thank you from all of our staff in El Salvador. All of your teams have been so encouraging, um, and, and we've made amazing friends uh, with so many of you here in, in, the, in the congregation. And so I just want to really thank you for all that you've done throughout the years. And I know numbers aren't everything, but they do tell part of a story. And over the last 12 years, your congregation, through your gifts, through your serving teams, through Celebration of Hope, you've equipped and trained more than 1,500 church leaders and community leaders in El Salvador who are actively serving... who are actively serving 55,000 people in over 80 communities in El Salvador, ongoing today. They're currently serving with them. And I think equally as important, because of your investment over the last 11, 12 years in these leaders, they were positioned, they had built, they had the vision, they had the mission, they knew what they were doing in their community, they had already mobilized their leaders to start engaging with their community. And because of those relationships between church and community, they were able to respond during the, this crisis of the last 18, 24 months in the most incredible ways. So because of your investment 12 years ago and throughout, these churches were ready to be agents of change and to lead transformation in their communities over the last 18 months. And I just want to quickly share some of those stories with you today. Just, I'm going to pick three stories, and we're going to walk through 2 Corinthians together here in a few minutes. But in December of this last year, I had the opportunity for the first time to meet face-to-face -face with many of our pastors. Um, there was this thing called Zoom. Does anybody know Zoom? Uh, do I need to explain Zoom to you? Or no, you probably know it, right? Yes. 
We had thousands and thousands and thousands of phone calls from the very beginning of the pandemic. March 12th, everything closed down El Salvador. Within two days, pastors are calling us, really trying to ask, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? They were already ready to engage, and they could already start seeing that people were losing their jobs, and they wanted to know what to do. How could they serve effectively? So we try to do it in the safest way. Thousands and thousands and thousands of phone calls. There's a you know, Facebook Live. I mean, you name it stuff that you are probably extremely sick of as much as I am at this point. But it was so good to finally sit with these pastors face to face and to just kind of like, oh, it was like, you know, we still had masks on and everything, but like, can we hug? Yes, can we hug? Can we actually connect again? And there's two things that stood out from those original conversations with those pastors in December. One was the level of crisis and suffering that they had experienced over the last 18, 24 months. It was still palpable. It was still heavy on their hearts. Many lost family members, church members, good friends to COVID. Others had seen their whole congregation, many lose their jobs. In fact, in El Salvador right now, 70% of the population still is under or unemployed. 70% of the population do not have full-time jobs. To see the level of pain that these pastors experience, and, and when people lost their jobs and couldn't go out because of the crisis, they immediately, because they didn't have any buffer or margin, they immediately started waving white flags. And you maybe have seen those pictures around. There was videos, there was pictures of it uh, throughout. But they immediately started putting white flags, basically letting people know we're down to one or two days of food left. Now these pastors know their communities extremely well. They've walked through it. They, they go house to house. They, they know the families that are in greatest need and they've been reaching out and caring for them. But one of the things that they shared during those conversations in December with me is how quickly people were literally able to feed themselves and then within days unable to feed themselves. And the level of stress, the level of anxiety, the level of fear that was being generated in these families, not knowing we can't go out, we don't have work, we have no possibility of even providing for our children. And you could see that, the weight of that on the pastors as they spoke. Obviously, many of them had fears too of what are we going to do as a church? How do we keep operating? How do we keep serving? You know, questions that all of us, all every church in the world had. How do we continue to be effective but the second part that, was, uh, that just moved me is that as they were talking about this great crisis, they were also kind of intermixed in that pain, intermixed in that suffering, almost as part of the continuation of that same kind of burden is that they would start crying because they would talk about the incredible opportunities that God had given them to serve and care for people in unique, in unique and new ways. It was almost like the same thing. The crisis was creating a triumph. The crisis created new opportunities for them to grow, both spiritually and emotionally. The crisis had given them an opportunity to serve in new ways. The crisis had given them an opportunity to see lives changed in their communities, to create new relationships. And in fact, I remember one pastor just literally, and I, I don't know why I struggled so much to understand this. You would think, hey, I've lived my whole life in El Salvador and I've been in development work or community development work all my life. 
But he was trying to explain to me, in tears, what an amazing privilege it was to see a family come to him, broken, not knowing where their next, next food was coming from, not knowing what they're going to do, and for him just to have the privilege and the divine opportunity to say, I've got some food for you for three months. We can do something. We can help you. He said, he said you know, they had given everything away as, as pastors and leaders. They were struggling too financially, but they would given everything away. So there came a point where they didn't know how much more they could do. Could they do anything? And yet they were still hearing people's cries, people's, the, the, the crisis, the suffering they were living in. And he said that when he was able to get a bag of food or when he was able to help them or pray with them, he said it was like this huge like, gift that Jesus had given them to be able to say, here, we can help. So in the middle of these conversations, it was clear that crisis and triumph went hand in hand. In the middle of crisis, new things were being created. And I, and I struggled to understand this. In fact, just, just to put it in perspective, these pastors, most of the churches are 100 to 150 congregation, uh, member congregations. Um, live on, the majority of the congregation live on less than $1.50 a day per person. As churches in El Salvador and Guatemala and Nepal, they provided more than 5 million meals to peoples in their communities in the first 8 to 9 months. 5 million meals. Now here's the impressive part. 67% of that was with their own resources and mobilizations. I mean, they, they went out and fished. When they saw people, they went out and fished. They went out and, and, and gave of their own corn. They mobilized resources for mayor's offices, wherever they could, to help people. It's incredible to see what these pastors were doing as they reached out. They realized quickly that many of the farmers in May, June were not going to get their first crops in. And if they didn't get their first crops in, they weren't going to have food for a year. So they said, what can we do? They helped over 2,400 farmers get their farms back up and running, and now they're thriving and feeding their families. These same churches realized as they connected to families, you know what, it goes beyond just providing food. These people feel alone, they feel anxious, they need help. So they provided emotional, spiritual care to more than 9,000 families over those 18 months of the crisis. Something happens in the middle of a crisis that when the power of Christ that's in, we, we talked last week, right, of the power of the resurrected Christ. Something happens in us when the power of the resurrected Christ allows us that, to see that in the middle of the crisis, we can continue to grow our souls. We can continue to create new relationships. We can continue to create new strategies, new relationships, new change. And I want to talk quickly about this, and I, I don't know why it took this particular experience to understand this particular verse in a new way. I've read it a thousand times. I thought I would have already known it. I should know it. But I think that hearing the pastors in December helped me understand this verse a little more. And I want to take just a quick few minutes to run through it. And you'll see it up on the slide. Can you guys do me a favor? In El Salvador, and I think this is a kind of a world tradition, would you mind standing for the reading of the word? Thank you. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. It's up on the screens for you to read. But we have this treasure in clay jars. But we have this treasure in clay jars. 
so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Thank you. You may be seated. Right from the beginning of this text, Paul reminds us of the most transformational truth that he wants us to hold on to. And that is it, that he's, he's trying to capture our attention again. And he's trying to say, remember, remember, remember that in you is the power of the resurrected Christ. God's love, God's grace. God's work in you, it's always, you're carrying it inside of you. You don't need to leave it behind. You just got to remember that God's power is in you. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you. And let's not forget, and so Paul's reminding us right from the beginning, always remember that the power of the resurrected Christ is deep in your body. At the same time, Paul reminds us, but our bodies are weak. Our bodies are fragile. In other words, Paul's reminding us that we live in a fallen world where people are selfish, where people hurt each other, where there's sickness. And I know, right? We've been living in a fallen world the last 18 months. We know there's sickness, there's death, there's pain. So Paul's right from the beginning of this text saying, remember, you've got this, the power of the living Christ, the resurrected Christ in you. But things won't be easy. You will experience pain. You will go through suffering. But here's the brilliant thing about this text. Is that if you ever wondered, what does it mean to have the power of the resurrected Christ in you? If you want a tangible expression of this, it's sometimes you go, yeah, yeah, we, we say, you know, Lord is risen, yeah, indeed, yes, yes, he has indeed. We, and wh- however you say it, in whatever tradition you say it, but what does that actually mean for us day to day? And if you look at it carefully, Paul gives us four clear things of what this means in this text. He first says, we suffer, but are not destroyed. We suffer, but are not destroyed. Paul himself, as you know, was persecuted, was beaten up, was imprisoned. Jesus himself, as we (laughs) celebrated last week, was beaten crucified. Jesus himself said multiple times to his disciples, this isn't going to be easy. The fact that you have the power of the resurrected Christ does not exclude you from pain. We live in a broken world. So therefore, we're all going to experience crisis. But what does it mean to have the power of the resurrected Christ in us is that that pain, that suffering won't destroy us. That pain, that crisis, on the contrary, could be an opportunity for God to continue to grow our souls. Even when our bodies become weak, our souls can become stronger. In the middle of a crisis, 
We can, we can actually experience and grow in emotional and spiritual health because the power of the resurrected Christ is in us. I want to share a quick story. You're going to see Nancy and Pastor Byron up there on the screen. Nancy is the woman who's serving, and then she's also in front of this cart, and I'll come back to this, these slides here in a second. But Nancy's a single mother of three, a 17, a 14, and 11-year-old. Before COVID, she would, like many women in the developing countries throughout the world, would actually make fry plantains, make yuca, yucca, or mandioc, if you're from Brazil, make them in their house, and then go door to door selling her food to clients. Well, if you can think about it, as soon as the shutdown orders went down, as soon as the crisis began, she couldn't now go out and sell. As soon as things started opening up, no one had money. Everybody had lost their jobs. So she found herself quickly in a very precarious situation. She first stopped paying rent on the house that they, that they were paying towards just to provide food. It came to a point where they, they, she couldn't even pay rent anymore. So they, they moved her out of the house. They took away the house that she had been paying, I think, for like 12 years on. She lost her house. Her and her three children moved into a very small little hostel, one-bedroom hostel. And as she describes the experience, just the fact of them moving, they were already in extreme anxiety and pain, but the fact of moving was so isolating for her that she began to feel alone, desperate, anxious, and even depressed. It was roughly around that time that Pastor Byron, and we'll put that picture up here in a second again, Pastor Byron, who's with the red shirt there, there he's from a church called ICC in Guatemala City. They had already been serving their community, they had already been working with their community leaders to see how they could provide care. And they went to where this hostel was and knocked on her door. It was at that point that they met, and immediately Pastor Byron and the team, the, the, the community leaders they were working with, identified her situation, said, okay, we need to figure out how we can help her. They immediately tried to, they brought food. I think they brought food for six months for her, at least to not be worried about food. But they realized this is only gonna be a short-term solution. We need to figure out a, how to get her back up on her feet. So they asked around, and someone from the neighborhood actually had one of those old push cart food, food push cart things that they weren't using anymore. And they said, hey, she can have it. She didn't have startup capital because she had used it all already. So the church rallied with the community and they gave her the first money to get going. And she went out there once it was safe in her push cart. You can see the picture now of her proudly with her push cart over there on the left, starting to get herself back economically, starting to get herself back now to where she could feed her family and ultimately move out of the house. It was a huge change in her life, but as she describes it, she still felt alone. She still felt utterly desperate. It was at that time that Pastor Byron said, you know what, let's assign two women from our church to just talk to her, to just check in on her every week. So they would send her a text or a WhatsApp or call her or try to figure out how to help her. She was, although she was starting to work and that was helping her, she was still in a deep, deep emotional crisis. It was about two, three months after these phone calls that they finally started meeting face to face. She started 
having a little more confidence in the relationship and started sharing her feelings, sharing her pain, sharing her anxiety. It was was in those moments that she said, you know what, all of this is help, getting back on my feet is critical, but I still don't feel complete, I still need I need help. I, 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 I just feel like I'm drowning in myself. I feel alone. I'm still extremely anxious. So the pastors started praying with her and caring for her. Ultimately, they invited her in to the community of the church, and she joined the church. And within a couple of weeks, God started doing something incredible in her life, started seeing that transformation deep in her life to where she gave herself the Lord. She accepted Christ, and now her kids are coming to the church, and there's this transformation, this radical change in her, and in her own words, she says, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my crisis, God was there. God never left. God was working on me. In the middle of my suffering, in the middle of this crisis, God was changing me, bringing me into fullness, bringing me into love, into grace. And I think this is what Paul is saying in this verse. He's saying even if you're a believer or not a believer, whether you're new to this whole following Jesus thing or not, sometimes in the middle of crisis, and maybe sometimes because of crisis, God is still working in us. God is still bringing us through. So what? We experience pain that we're not destroyed. The power of Jesus Christ living in us allows us in the middle of crisis to be renewed, to grow closer to him, to grow more in love with him. Then Paul goes on and gives us a second little bit of advice here. He says, we are confused, but don't lose hope. We are confused, but don't lose hope. I love the way William Barclay talks about this. He's one of my favorite theologians. He says the way he translates this is sometimes we feel everything is pressing in on us. It feels like we're being hemmed in and we have no way out. It's, it's, we, we feel like, you know what, I don't know what to do even next. I don't even know what my next steps are. And sometimes we get to a point where we might even be confused of the direction. We might be confused of, of why are we doing this? Or, or maybe we get to the point where we're totally like stagnant and can't move anymore because we don't know the next steps. But what Barclay reminds us and what we read in this text is that even when we feel most pressed in, there's always a way out. When we have the power of the resurrected Christ in us, even when everything feels bleak, that this is not, there's no way out, we don't know what to do, God always provides a new opening into the spaciousness of his love, into the spaciousness of his grace for us. Pastor Marbing, the next pictures you're going to see up there, in, pastors a small church in El Salvador um, in the city of Chantus Nene. Can you say that three times fast? Chantus Nene, Chantus Nene, Chantus Nene. Great pastor, amazing town. They've been working for years in this community. They've helped rebuild roads. They've worked with the community leaders to um, actually improved the schools. They, they know what they were doing. They were cranking. They, they had figured it all out. They thought, you know what, we're really transforming our community. Crisis hits. No one's coming to church. They can't operate anymore. 
people in the community are still suffering, so they reached out and provided food, and then they helped with some farmers, but they thought, you know what, this isn't going to be enough, and we don't, we don't know what the next steps are. As they saw more and more people losing their jobs in the communities, they thought, you know what, we, we have to think of something different. We've got to do something new. So they thought, you know what, we've never, they talked with the community leaders and they said, let's do chicken farms. Let's, start a, let's try to do chicken farms to start to generate income. Well, the pastor himself says, we had never done this. We were scared. We have no, I don't know how we're going to do this. We've never helped people start businesses. I don't even know if the church should be doing this or not, but let's just figure it out. Let's try it. They started with 20, little, uh, 20 producers. Two weeks ago, we were at the celebration of their first batch of chickens of these 20 that had produced and they all brought one or two chickens you know, as, you know, to celebrate. What are you going to eat at a celebration for ch- chicken coops? You're going to have a big old chicken soup, right? The most amazing chicken soup you could ever have. But I sat there, and, and you heard the stories one after the other. How they thought that, you know what? We had never done a business. We didn't know if this was going to work. The church leaders like, we didn't know if this was going to be the way out. And one after the other, they, they talked about how proud they were of, of producing their chickens, and now they were selling them. In fact, three of the 20 have already hired two people. Their businesses are growing. Two of them want to make them bigger. The community themselves literally said, you know what? We want to add 10 more people this year to the chicken coop project. When they were hemmed in and not knew, they didn't know where to go, they took that first step and said, let's see if we can go into something that we're not comfortable doing. But to the big surprise of the church, as they were doing these chicken farms, there was one leader from one of the villages that they were working in who had always been kind of the, he'd always been the most negative towards the gospel. Let me put it that way, because there's probably stronger words I could use. And he'd really not let any churches in. He, that pastor, invited Pastor Marbing to come and said, could you do a Bible study with us? Could you start meeting with our village. Today, they have 70 people in that Bible study every week, and now there's another village next door that wants to do the same thing. When, the, when crisis hits and we think that there's not a way out, God does provide new strategies. God provides new opportunities for ministry. Paul goes on to say, we are persecuted but never alone. Now, persecuted is such a strong word. We know it can stand for criticism, for, marg- for being marginalized, for being silenced. But in some places, it can mean being excluded violently or through violence. Uh, we also work in Nepal. Don't ask me why. We work mostly in Central America and Nepal. That's another long story that I'll tell you another day if I get a chance. But in Nepal, especially in the rural areas where we work, as you know, the Christian church is marginalized. It's, it's been separated from life. In fact, the Hindu, uh, Nepal is the only uh, solely or the purely Hindu country in the world, and they're proud of that, and they protect that. So many of our churches have struggled, and the Christian churches are small. But this small church, and you'll see the picture of Pastor Anil and his wife Nomi up there, started serving the community about two, three years ago, trying to figure out how they could engage, how they could build relationships. At first, the community leaders didn't really accept them as part of the community, but they slowly started building relationships. When the crisis hit, uh, they were raising funds to help with families, but the mayor's office, which are very political entities, would not let the church share any of their aid to the family. So they basically excluded the Christian church from going house to house. What they did is they said, you can give us your stuff, and then we'll go house to house. 
So the Christian church said, you know what? We've been called to serve. It's not about us. And they gave them everything they were generating, everything they were bringing in, they gave it to the mayor's office. Little by little, the community leaders started going to the mayor's office and saying, hey, could you help us? Uh, you know, the, the, the Christian church is there with us and they're really active. Could you maybe do an, just one small exception and have the Christian church help us because they're ready to help us and we need more help? The mayor's office thought about it. They thought, huh, we don't do this kind of stuff around here. But they said, we will let them. So the Christian church started working with their Hindu community leaders, going house to house, caring for them. Not only with food, but they helped rebuild 17 houses together. They put electricity in for 20 families in greatest need. But here's the most incredible part of the story. This year, this year, the, the community, the Hindu community uh, leaders, actually elected Christians onto their community committees. But not only that, the mayor's office, and I want you to put the picture back up, the mayor's office actually is paying to build the Christian church. They gave him $3,000 to actually rebuild the church, which even our Nepali staff, even the other pastors have never heard about. This is the first time that they're aware of that someone has provided money to build the church. So when you are persecuted, God is reminding us, you're not alone. If you continue to do what I've called you to do, if, you, if the power of Christ is in you, guiding you, then I will create new relationships. I will create new influence. I will create new ways of caring for people. And finally, Paul states, we are not down, but we get up again. The fundamental characteristic of a Christian is not that we don't get knocked down. We cannot forget this. We're going to be knocked down. We live in a hard, difficult world. But what defines a Christian, what should ultimately be our calling card, is that when we get knocked down through the power of Christ, we get back up. Whatever that means for us, in whatever context we're in. And I want to close real quickly sharing a video with you of Pastor Jennifer an incredible story that kind of wraps up all that's been going on over the last 18 months and in the most incredible way. A pastor who literally didn't know how to respond and because of the power of Christ in them did miracles. Thank you. In my case, I saw the fidelity of God showing me Jennifer. Yo puedo hacer milagros, porque estos son procesos de sembrado grande, de laxo de meses. Yo puedo hacer que dé papas en menos de dos meses. Eso es un milagro de Dios. Y aunque como humanos perdemos a veces la fe y perdemos un ratito quizás esa confianza, Él sigue siendo fiel. Mi nombre es Jennifer Ximenia Zúñiga de Bautista. Llevo pastoreando, bueno, en el ministerio llevo 22 años y en las cruces estoy ya 19 años de estar pastoreando. Bueno, cuando escuchamos acerca de, de, del COVID, nos dieron el impacto que ya estaba un caso aquí en El Salvador, pues nos sorprendió y dijimos, Dios mío, ¿y qué va a pasar? 
Pero no lo veíamos así como en ese momento como algo tan terrible, sino hasta que se nos prohibió tener actividades dentro de la congregación, ¿verdad? Como los cultos, los servicios que hacíamos, o las actividades con los niños, y empezaron a suspendernos todas estas cosas. Pero dentro de esa desesperación, y uno dice, ¿y hoy, y hoy qué? Y frustración, hermano. Dentro de una frustración enorme en ver los proyectos estancados. Y, Dios mío, y, y ya no hacer nada, pues. Sale el presidente diciendo que si alguien del lugar ¿verdad? tenía necesidad o estaba pasando hambre, sacaran banderas blancas. No sé si nos recordamos de esa noticia. Pero de repente empezamos a ver en, en, nuestro, en nuestro entorno que había gente que estaba sacando banderas blancas. Y de hecho así era, porque como no había trabajo, empezamos a ver la necesidad que había en las personas. O sea, aún en esa, en, esa, en esa situación teníamos que accionar. Lo primero que hicimos es empezar a pedirle a los, todos los hermanos de la iglesia, tú tienes una libra de, dos libras de arroz, comparte una libra de arroz. Entonces la gente, si le llegaba algo, decía, ah, tengo dos libras de arroz, le voy a regalar una a ella. O sea, la gente empezó a compartir de lo que se le daba. Eso ayudó a paliar un poquito. Yo realmente traté de controlarme y no entrar en desesperación. Porque uno piensa, ¿y, y qué va a pasar? ¿Cómo vamos a sostener? Solo tenía un dólar en mi mano. Yo tenía el dólar y le estaba viendo el dólar y le decía al señor, ¿y qué voy a hacer con un dólar? ¿Qué voy a hacer de comida? En eso ahí que pasó un camión, un pickup que venía vendiendo verdura. Y le digo al hombre, véndame un, un dólar de papa. Y me dice él, por la pandemia está todo caro. Y yo ando saliendo y ando con gran miedo, pero tengo que salir, me dijo él. Entonces le digo, de igual, démelas, le dije yo. Y las compré. Y subo a mi casa y yo con lágrimas en mis ojos peleando la papa. Y yo le decía al señor peleando, señor, ayúdeme. ¿Y cómo voy a hacer para sobrevivir? ¿Y cómo vamos a hacer? Cuando vi toda la cáscara de la papa, solo la puta. Y le echo más tierra. Ay, en el nombre de Jesús, regáleme papa. Hasta ahí fue. Esa es mi gran oración. A los días salgo yo a ver lo que había sembrado y veo que ¡oh! me, me, me germinaron. Para mi sorpresa, cada matita me estaba dando ocho, diez papas. Ocho, diez papas. Yo me puse a llorar y le, le, le agarraba y le decía, mi amor, mira, un dólar de papas tengo aquí. Amor, mira, otro dólar de papas tengo aquí. De repente me comía algo y, y veía la semilla, hay que sembrarla a ver si nos da. Tomate, cebolla, chile dulce, chile jalapeño, cebollín, cebolla, ajo, melón, sembré maíz. Y todo eso yo le decía a la gente, mire, si yo puedo, usted puede. Entonces la gente empezó a sembrar en, en lugares pequeños, en macetas pequeñas. Vamos, botellas como esta, las rompíamos, hacíamos algo, sembrábamos y veía que funcionaba. Entonces me mandaban fotos y cuando ya estaba el fruto, me mandaban a la casa. Y era algo que para nosotros en este cultivo, porque solo café que nos metió, que podíamos hacer, de repente empezamos a ver que podíamos hacer algo más y sembrar otras cosas. Eh, cuando se dieron los huertos caseros, ya no teníamos banderas blancas. En vez de una planta que no daba nada, empezaron a sembrar algo que les podía dar comida. Y, y otra cosa que yo siento que a la gente le gustaba es que vieran que tenían esas cosechas y poder compartir de esas cosechas. Y uno se goza viendo eso, viendo y, y, y también, como le digo, me sirvió como, como una terapia psicológica a la gente, ¿vea? porque ya no estaba con aquel traumatismo de estar pensando en lo mismo y qué voy a comer. Cuando tú miras tu matita de chile dulces, Wow, y tú vas a cortar una satisfacción, digo, no, el chile jalapeño, cosas que yo he sembrado y yo le he dicho, sí se puede. Yo noté que Dios estaba ahí conmigo. 
por medio de la comunidad, noté la fidelidad de Dios en mi vida. Pero comenzó con ese milagro de papas. Yo he llorado, yo he reído, yo me he desesperado como cualquier otra persona. Cuando tienes la convicción de lo que Dios está haciendo en tu vida, del llamado, aunque te entren esas dudas, tienes que creerle a Dios y creer que puedes, no por las capacidades que tenemos, sino porque Dios te capacita para enfrentarte a esto que vas. Dentro de mí hay una satisfacción y yo puedo ver la vista que tenemos en la iglesia y yo me sonrío y digo, estamos logrando, Jennifer, estamos logrando.